and take out a copy of the confession. The lecture will be on paragraphs 4, 5, and 6 of chapter 16. And I want to read also two portions of Scripture that we're going to be looking at as a, a way of introduction. I want to read from Luke chapter 17 and then flip quickly to Matthew 25. Luke 17 and Matthew 25, and I'm going to read them and, and almost try to put them together. Two separate parables, both of them dealing with a parable and then one is just a, a teaching, but both of them dealing with the idea of servanthood and our service to the Lord. And hopefully, as always, by the end of the lecture, you can see why I put these together. Hopefully, everything that I say will make that clear by the time we're finished. These these paragraphs, I'll just save and, and work through them instead of reading them as a whole at the beginning. So Luke chapter 17, beginning at verse 7, I'll read verses 7 through 10 and then flip very quickly to Matthew 25. Luke 17, 7. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep Say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and recline at table. Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me, and dress properly, and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also... When you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Matthew 25, 20. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for the reading that we've already heard. We are appreciative to be a part of a congregation, a part of a church that will gather and will endure the reading of Your Word. Lord, we know there are many churches who put a time limit and a time frame on everything that happens. They would not endure sound teaching. They would not endure a lengthy reading of Scripture. But God, we've come here and I believe we're amongst a group of people who, who say yes and amen. Read the Word. We want to hear the Word. We want to, to learn of the Word. I thank You for that, Lord. That's a blessing. We don't take it for granted. We cherish it. We, we ask that You'd add Your blessing to the reading of Your Word and that You'd make application of it now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
I've mentioned many times before that in the time of the Reformation, especially as theologians began to clearly hammer out the doctrine of justification by faith, that a charge was often levied against the Protestants to the effect that if men were taught that they are justified by faith apart from works of the law, and that their good works play no part in their legal standing with God, that that would produce licentious living. They were told, this is what Rome would bring this charge. You can't teach men that because they'll only live licentiously. They will, re- they will cast off all restraint and they'll live uncontrolled and disobedient lives. If, their argument is, is if men are not convinced that being a moral person is required in order to stand acquitted before God, then they'll live in any way they please. They'll completely disregard all morality. If you want moral people, then you've got to convince them that their their eternity, their standing before God, depends on it. And that'll work. That'll keep people moral if they believe this is how I stay in right standing with God. Now, while we would obviously disagree with that argumentation, if we take a step back and look at the professing Christian world, the Protestant evangelical world, we might begin to think they were, they were correct, it seems. We look at what we consider the, the present-day Reformation resurgence, and does it not seem that antinomianism is alive and well in many quote, reformed circles? If we look outside of that at broader evangelicalism, it looks like every man is doing right in what is right in his own eyes. And if you question it, what's the response? I'm under grace. I'm not justified by my works. But then we turn and look at groups like the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Twelve Tribes, people who would practically deny justification by faith, and we, we look at their lives, they appear to be the most upright and the most moral people around, at least outwardly. We're almost tempted to say, when we see them acting the way they act and living the way they live, we're almost tempted to say, well, if I believe my salvation depended on the way I lived, well, I'd live like that too. Hopefully the, the wickedness of that kind of thinking is, is recognized before it comes out of our mouths. That ought not to be the way we think, but that seems to be the way it's playing out in many circles. Those who don't believe in justification by faith are moral people, and those who profess to believe in justification by faith are immoral people. So what is the role of good works? That's the question that we're answering in this chapter. Are they necessary for salvation? The illustration that I like to use is this. Good works are required for salvation like exhaust fumes are required in the operation of an internal combustion engine. The exhaust fumes are not the fuel. They're not the spark plugs. But if the spark plugs are sparking and the fuel is igniting, you're going to have fumes. And if you don't have fumes, something's not in operation. It's not working properly. Good works are not brought into account in our justification. But they are essential in our sanctification because they are the evidence that sanctification is happening. They they prove that we are alive, that we are running, that we're, we're firing on all cylinders 
and we're, we're putting out what we're supposed to, what we, what we say has happened within us. Now we come to this fourth paragraph. I've, I've called it the limit of good works. If we're going to make a proper assessment of our good works before God, we need to be clear on just how far they go. They are important to an extent, but we know that there is an area where they, they're not taken into account at all. And so exactly how far do our good works go? And this fourth paragraph opens up with what we might consider a very exceptional test case. Notice it says, They who in their obedience attain to the greatest height which is possible in this life. Now we'll stop there. What we're trying to do is make a sweeping application. And what you do if you want to get everybody under the umbrella of this application is you make a point using... An extreme example. You start from the highest and you make an argument from the the greater to the lesser. And so we have the subject before us, a person who in their obedience attains to the greatest height possible in, in this life. Picture that person. In their obedience, they go as far as is possible. They are as righteous as they can be. Picture that person. In Scripture we have examples... Like Noah, says Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Job was a blameless and upright man who feared God and turned away from evil. Ladies, you think of the angel coming to the Virgin Mary and saying to her, you have found favor with God. Or think of Anna, the elderly woman. The Scriptures say she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. Who can top that? She basically lived at the temple in service, in prayer and fasting all the time. And we, we might would think, okay, in, in, in their day, who on earth could, could have stood up to that kind of righteousness? Somewhere in the world right now, there is an individual, only God knows who they are, who is the most practically righteous person on the earth. God looks at their life, and if you wanted to put it on a chart, He would say, here's the one who's the most righteous. We could even in our own minds begin to try to think. In, in this room, somebody is practically the most godly person in the room. All of these people who may by all accounts be considered upright and godly, we still have to be convinced their godliness only goes so far. It is limited by the typical infirmity that plagues us all, the weakness that is common to all men. Even the holiest of all the human race is still a member of the fallen human race. You've probably heard it said, the best of men are men at best. So those who attain to the absolute height of obedience, the confession says, are so far from being able to supererogate, and then that word is defined, and do more than God requires. That word means to go beyond duty. They are so far from going beyond their duty as that they fall short of much which in duty they are bound to do. So if we wanted to picture in our mind the most righteous person who attains to the height of godliness, that person is so far from going beyond their duty, they actually have fallen far short of what God requires of them. Not only do they not go above and beyond, they too fall far short. The holiest of men falls far short of fulfilling 
his duty. Now, what does that say about the rest of us? If you take that exceptional case, and then we say, then we must be convinced that even on our best day, in our best hour, our best moment, we still fall far short of what God requires. The confession gives us several proofs here. Job chapter 9, verses 2 and 3. Truly I know that it is so. But how can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. Job says if you ever, you ever want to get in a, in a back and forth with God, and you want to try to contend with God and compare what you're doing with what God requires and just go back and forth at every instance and every action, every thought, every word, every deed, you want to go back and forth. He says, not once in a thousand times will you ever find a man who can find one place where they have even begin, begun to approach the righteousness that God requires. Not once in a thousand times. What, that, what he's saying is, never. Not once. Galatians 5.17 is referenced. The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. As long as we live in these mortal bodies, we have this war. Flesh, Spirit. Flesh, Spirit. Always warring against one another. And even when we aspire to do good, even when we want to, to do good and go beyond our duty, even in our aspirations, they're not high enough. We've fallen short. Luke 17, 10, we just read, So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. When we have done all we are commanded, then you can say, I've just done my duty. As servants, we are bound as servants all our days. And and a, a servant whose very time and resources are on loan to them from their master cannot go beyond what is commanded. Once one duty is finished, and that was the point of the story, once one duty is finished, we're off to the next duty, and off to the next duty, and off to the next duty. We don't check off all the boxes and say, all right, I'm finished for the day, I'm going to take a break. We never clock out or, or, or clock our hours and then move on into overtime. We're servants. You don't have time. It all belongs to the Master. This is the reality of our state before God. Even the greatest of men fall short because we are servants. Now the fifth paragraph takes that reality as if we're all not humbled enough, and presses it. So all of our pride has just been wounded. You were sitting there thinking, I'm fairly confident everybody is thinking that I'm the most righteous person in the room. Well, even if you are, you were just told you've still fallen far short. So we're going to take that reality. Your pride is wounded. We're going to peel back the skin and we're just going to dig on that fresh meat a little bit and push it even further. Paragraph 5, I've entitled The Insufficiency of Good Works. Not only... Are you, are you, have you fallen short? But your, your good works are insufficient. Here's the negative. Good works only go so far, and here's why. We cannot, by our best works, merit pardon of sin or eternal life at the hand of God. If we considered eternal life and, and pardon of sin like valuable pieces of art in a museum somewhere, 
your good works, if you put your good works into monetary form, you can't afford it. You don't have the money. If we go back to the picture of a slave, if you never are able to advance beyond duty, then it's not as though you have a stockpile of extra merit that you can save up to buy something with. Because it's just duty, 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 duty. You you never go beyond, so then you never have leftovers. There, There is no treasury of merit anywhere, not even in our own minds, in that sense, we're always coming in in the red. We never move into the black. We're, all, we're always falling short. So it's not like we say, hey, I've got a couple extra good works here. I can put them in my eternal life savings account. It doesn't work that way. So we, we, can't, we can't merit those things. But then we go even further. And here are the reasons why we can't merit them. We can't merit pardon of sin and eternal life by reason of the great disproportion that is between them and the glory to come. The good works and the glory that is to come. Trading our good works for pardon of sin and eternal life won't work because the prize is far more valuable than what's being offered. It would be like if you came to me with an old t-shirt that wasn't my size and said, hey, I'll trade this to you for one of your kids. I'd say, what am I going to do with that? These are, these are different categories. You, 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 that's not, that doesn't work. There's a disproportion between what you're trying to pay me and what you're asking for me to give you, you see. Now you very often hear unbelievers argue this, this argument. An eternity in hell seems awful severe for 70 or 80 years of sin. I mean, even if somebody was the worst of the worst... They live to be 80 years old, 90 years old, let's say 100 years old. 100 years of sin doesn't seem very fair that God would pay that with eternity's worth of wrath. That seems unfair. You'll never hear them argue that an eternity of bliss in the presence of God is a little bit too grand of a reward for a single lifetime of my half-hearted humanistic moralism. But they still think they're going to heaven when they die. That's not unfair. But to go to hell, well, that's far too, far too severe. What we get is far greater than what we could ever render to God by way of good works. It's, there's a disproportion between the prize, glory to come, and our good works. You can't buy it. Secondly, the infinite distance that is between us and God, whom by them the whom being God, them being the good works, whom by them we can neither profit nor satisfy for the debt of our former sins. So men who imagine that being a good person is surely good enough to get them to heaven. And you meet these people. You going to heaven? I think I am. Why? Well, I'm a fairly good person. They think that way. They think that they can earn heaven for themselves by their good works. They've clearly never understood the God with whom we have to do or the great wickedness of their sins against Him. They act like there there are no sins. God is not considering that. He's only considering my good works. And I think they're pretty good. And I think that God thinks they're pretty good too. And, And they look at heaven and hell as just two optional locations that God has got to pick one Clearly the worst of the worst go to hell. Nobody wants to name who that is. And then everybody else who's fairly decent, God picks heaven for them because they were a pretty good person. 
But they don't take into account what the real problem is. And that is, and that, is that we have sinned against a God of infinite and immeasurable holiness and goodness. Our good works don't profit Him in the least. He's infinite in being and perfection. He lacks nothing, eternally satisfied in Himself. His, our good works aren't anything to Him. They don't help Him. They don't benefit Him at all. Going beyond that, each and every sin we commit is a personal attack against Him. It's not that we just sin against an external standard. We are sinning against a personal, living God. A real God. So, again, imagine this scenario. We commit a, a single sin. We commit this crime against God, which is a personal defamation of His own character. And then we say to Him, I'll fix it. I'll pay you back. I'll, do an, I'll, I'll render to you an equal but opposite good work to sort of offset the wrong that I've done in sinning against an infinite, holy personal God. What are you going to render? You don't have any infinite holy works. You can't make up what you've done. Again, it's, it's as if I took the life of one of your family members. I killed somebody in your family. And I said, hey, I'll come make it up to you. I drove to your house plucked a blade of grass from your yard, handed it to you and said, here, let's just pretend it never happened. It's, it's foolishness. The, the very idea is offensive that that would be any kind of payment or rendering. More guilt is incurred when we even begin to suggest that justice can be satisfied by our good works. Self-righteousness is adding to the offense. It's not helping. God doesn't say it's cute. The fig leaves that Adam and Eve sewed together, God didn't come along and say, I see what you're doing. You're, you got a good start here. Take four more leaves and make a bigger covering. No, He said, that won't work. Something must die. What you've tried to do is actually a stench in comparison to what needs to be done. And then we have these three references. Romans 3.20, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes a knowledge of sin. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Ephesians 2.8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast by grace, by God working in you, you have been saved through faith. Not your works. And then Romans 4, 6, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, separated from works, not associated with works. They're together. They're divorced. Put your works over here. And grace over here, faith over here, they're not together. They don't come into play. They don't work together to earn a righteous standing. It's righteousness apart from works. Works of the law, even at our best, remind us of our remaining corruption. And again, when we attempt to satisfy God with our works, what we're doing is defacing His plan of salvation. We're saying, I see your plan. I don't like your plan. I think my works 
are actually more valuable than the righteousness you're offering me in your Son. The confession says, but when we have done all we can, we have done but our, but our duty and our unprofitable servants. They're quoting directly from Luke 17, returning to the previous point. Anything we do, even our good works, we're doing as servants. It's just our duty. We're not earning anything. And it goes on. And because as they are good, they proceed from His Spirit. Now here's another reason why we don't merit pardon for sin or eternal life. Because any good work, any goodness in any work that we do, it didn't come from us. It's from His Spirit. And this reference here, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against such things there is no law. We cannot take credit for these things because they're not from us. They're ultimately not ours to claim. We can't pay God with money that He gave us. Your boss, it would be kind of silly if he came to you and said, hey, can I borrow 300 bucks so that I can pay you and your paycheck was $200? What's the point? You're unprofitable. Because it comes from Him. And then the opposite side of that is, and as they are wrought by us, they are defiled and mixed with so much weakness and imperfection that they cannot endure the severity of God's punishment. In other words, anything good in our good works comes from the Spirit and everything else comes from us and that everything else is defilement, weakness, and imperfection. That's what we bring to the table. A good work if we wanted to just describe it in, in, in ideological form, a good work, as soon as we come along and act that good work, we've defiled it, we've corrupted it, we've added the weakness. That's what Paul means when he says the law weakened by the flesh. God's law is great. It's holy, righteous, and good. It's perfect. We come along, and even when we are attempting to fulfill it, we defile it, and we... Corrupt it. Isaiah 64, 6 says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Now the, the language there, we've all become like one who is unclean. Our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment or a filthy rag. The idea is of ceremonially unclean, unfit for God's presence. As soon as we begin to try to merit pardon for sin and eternal life, as soon as we try to satisfy God's justice and profit Him in some way by our good works, we become like a woman in the Old Covenant, unclean because of her menstrual impurity, and we have to be asked, ma'am, we're going to need you to go outside the congregation until you get cleaned up. And don't come back until you're finished. You can't be here. This is where God's presence dwells. Psalm 143, verse 2. Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. Even the most righteous man on earth is not righteous before God. What that means is in comparison with God's inherent righteousness and perfection, in that, with that standard, nobody measures up. 
Our good works are insufficient. They cannot merit, they cannot earn, they cannot pay for, they cannot even... We can't even begin to act like our good works are little pebbles that we could put together and after a while, I think we might build a big enough bridge to get to God. It won't work. As other men have said, trying to get to God on your good works is like trying to climb to heaven on a rope made out of sand. It won't work. God is too righteous. We are too sinful. And as soon as we even begin to attempt that, we become an even greater stench in His nostrils. The more we try, the further we are pushed away because why? God stiff arms the proud. You will not come close to me that way. And now paragraph 6. What I've entitled the acceptation of good works or also the blessed notwithstanding. That not, the word notwithstanding means in spite of all of that. Yet notwithstanding, in spite of everything we just read, two truths, one produces the other one. The persons of believers being accepted through Christ, their good works also are accepted in Him. In spite of everything we just read, the persons of believers are accepted through Christ. Persons meaning we as individuals. We who are believers have been accepted by God through Christ. Because of what Christ has done in our place in doing and in dying, and because we've been united to Him by His Spirit through faith, the Father accepts us. Not for us but for Christ. He says, you are acceptable. You may come. The Father says, I welcome the one. I welcome this one, whoever you might be. I welcome you because of my Son. Now that leads to the second truth. Their good works are also accepted in Him. Because God has accepted us, He also accepts our works. But again, not for the works themselves. Remember, there is no merit, no satisfaction, no supererogation. We've not gone beyond our duty. Not for the works themselves, but for Christ. The good works are accepted in Him, in Christ. And the reference here is to Ephesians 1.5, to the praise of the glorious grace wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. That's how the King James translates that phrase. He hath made us accepted. Now, if we wanted to translate this and also invent words. It would literally read, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has begraced us. In and through Christ, we've been given grace. God in Christ, by His Spirit, in us. And that in us has made us acceptable to God. The point being made is that it's not us essentially. It's not me because of me. It's not me because of my works. It's not because I'm so great. It's as we are in Christ. Christ is the determining factor in our being acceptable to God. And having been accepted in our persons, our good works are accepted in Christ. 1 Peter 2.5, You yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Even our good works done in obedience can only be acceptable to God through what Christ has done. Now, 
It's not as though, as Christians, we perform our good works and so let's say our good works pay 30% of the bill and God looks and He pulls the, the rest of the bill, the, the, the sum, out of Christ's merit and He puts it together and He says, I accept your good works. Because of what Christ, that's not what happens. The Father has already accepted the work of Christ and is fully satisfied in Christ. And therefore, when He accepts our works, it's not because there's a bill left to pay. There's something to, to fill up. But He accepts them as offerings given by those His Son has redeemed. Or to, to think of it this way in, in an illustrative and anthropomorphic sense, the sacrifice of Christ has already gone up with such a sweet-smelling aroma to God that His nostrils have forever been clogged with that smell. And when we who are in Christ offer up our spiritual sacrifices of good works, they are accepted because Christ has already pleased the Father in our place. The confession goes on to clarify, not as though they, the good works, were in this life wholly blamable and unreprovable in God's sight. In other words, the fact that God accepts our good works in Christ doesn't mean that all of a sudden our good works become unblameable and unreprovable. That because Christ has died, now everything we do is perfected or perfect. It's not that. But that He, looking upon them, the good works in His Son, is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. The Father is so pleased with what Christ has done that His pleasure spills over to all those in Christ. It runs down upon their works. And notice, He is pleased and rewards that which is sincere. Rewards! We didn't even do anything. He's given us rewards. Blessed and rewarded for works done in sincerity and faith simply because of what Christ has done. And this is where it led us to that Matthew 25 portion. We put them together. You got these servants. Well, I've done all that I'm, I'm supposed to do. I'm just an unprofitable servant. I've just done my duty. And yet on the last day, the master says, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. The joy of the Master is our reward for simply doing our duty and not very well at that. Why? Because of Christ. Hebrews 6.10 says, For God is not unjust, so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for His name in serving the saints as you still do. Our simple service to God living in obedience to Him with the talent or talents that He's given us, though falling far short of the requirement, though meriting nothing before God, in no way satisfying the justice of God, defiled and mixed with weakness and imperfection, those works, God doesn't overlook them. God does not ignore them. He accepts them in Christ and rewards us with an eternal weight of glory. He's not unjust so as to overlook your work. Now, hearing this, Protestants, 
Does this not compel you to obedience? This, when I hear this, I don't say, hey, if that's how it works, then I'm living however I want to. Forget this, God. Of course not. A real comprehension of this truth, rather than relaxing our obligation, actually intensifies it and transfers it from obligation to delight. I want to please this God because of what He's done in Christ. If I know that this God, God the Father, is that satisfied with the work of this man, Christ Jesus, then I want to live like that man, Christ Jesus. What would free us up to labor in sincere, faithful obedience more than to know that in Christ Jesus, the Father's pleased. He smiles. He rewards. He's not waiting with, with the stick. Waiting to see an imperfection in a work that we do. To swat whenever we do it. That's not how he, He's not unjust like that. And when we are rewarded, when we attain to the next world and the next life, we can only say, all glory be to Christ. It's not me. So let's stand and let's sing that song together and we'll be dismissed in prayer.